You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 28. But Jews from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, He rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, it is in these moments when I recognize my own weaknesses. But it is also in these moments when I recognize that you, by your Holy Spirit, are powerful to save. You're a mighty God. Lord, your word is powerful. And now as we set our hearts to hear what you have come to teach us, Lord, would you help us to hear well so that we might make the name of Jesus famous. Lord, we are in awe of your goodness to us and your grace and your mercy. We have prayed and we have sung about these things. So now, Lord, by your word, would you pierce us so that we may make much of the name of Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Good morning. I'll set this right here. Um, It's good to see you all today. It's good to be with you on this Sunday morning. Um, One of the things that uh, I love about um, our church is looking out and seeing you all um, from this vantage point because I can can tell who's falling asleep and who's, I'm just kidding. Um, I hope you don't fall asleep. I might uh, have to wake you up a little bit. Um, We've been studying Acts and I think one of the things that um, even Pastor Redberg and I talked about this week is is there's this this cycle in Acts and there's there's there the, these moments where you know we're we're kind of preaching through the same thing that we've already preached you know there's certain events that happen and it's it's similar to what's happened before but see and with the gospel spread we recognize that there's two things that always show up over our last four weeks in our study of Acts we've we've seen recounted the endeavors of Paul and Barnabas who had been sent out from the church in Antioch and Pisidia. 
Um, they've been sent out to proclaim God's word. And today, our passage is going to bring us full circle. From chapter 13 to the end of chapter 14, we're coming full circle, um, concluding the first missionary journey of Paul. And to this point, halfway through our work in this book, we've seen these themes, certain repeated themes, repeated over and over again. The two themes surrounding the expansion of God's word are these, opposition and conversion. These two themes, opposition and conversion, are all throughout the book of Acts. Would you agree with that? Those of you who have been studying with us, you'd say yes. Halfway through, yes, we see that happen. There's, there's opposition to the spread of the gospel. The gospel message is proclaimed, and then there's opposition to it. But in the midst of that opposition, when everybody would think that the gospel is going to be shut down, people are converted because God has appointed some to eternal life. Amen? What good news. Our passage today is similar it's essentially the, the ending travel journal of the missionaries in this first journey. We'll see that in the culmination of the opposition to Paul and Barma's proclamation of Jesus, we see that even in the face of such opposition, the gospel spreads among people who come to believe in Jesus Christ. God opens the door to their faith. Who opens the door? God opens the door. Who opens the door? God opens the door. God opens doors. Even when human agents determine to shut doors, God bursts them open, doesn't he? God bursts them open. As we move through the text, I want to unpack the following ideas that present themselves for our consideration this morning. One, anti-Christian opposition. Two, discipleship care. And three, the power of God's word. Uh, as we explore these, our goal overall, is to have you leave with this conclusion. God's word is powerful, and through it, he will accomplish his purposes. Therefore, we can proclaim it with confidence, knowing the most valuable endeavor that any of us can be a part of and participate in and support is the ministry of the word of God. That's the umbrella under which we want to unpack these three ideas. So are you with me? Are you awake? coffee in your system, you ready to go? Amen, let's go. First, let's look at anti-Christian opposition, the heart of rejection, the heart of hate. Verse 19 is an interesting way to start off our, our passage today, is it not? But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. What a way to start. Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra and Jews from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium show up, turn the crowds, and determine to execute Paul by stoning. How did we get to this place? It, it may be helpful to, to do a little review to remind ourselves where this opposition to the gospel came from. Three opponents are mentioned, Jews from Antioch, Jews from Iconium, and the crowds. The Jews from Antioch were those who had become jealous of the crowds that the gospel had drew. Paul and Barnabas had arrived in Pisidian Antioch, and after entering the, entering the local synagogue, they were invited to share a word of encouragement. We see this in Acts 13, 13 through 16. And, and, and so what word, I've said this before, but so what word of encouragement, what word do you think Paul's going to share with the crowd? He's going to share Jesus. It's the only thing 
that's worthy to share when you have such an opportunity. Paul proclaimed the word of God and its culmination in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that after this sermon, the sermon that Jason Harris and I, and we both covered in a couple of weeks, whereas Paul did it in one, right? That after that sermon, the people begged for them to return and teach them the following Sabbath. And it says that many Jews and Gentile converts to Judaism began following their gospel teaching. That's 13, 42 through 43. The next Sabbath, Luke records that almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And here's the sad part. As the crowds gathered, when the Jews in Antioch saw the crowds, they were jealous and began to contradict what Paul was teaching. Paul rebukes them in 1346. Paul explains that they have thrust aside the word of God. Basically, that you've rejected the word of God and that in so doing, they have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. What a rebuke. They have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life by their rejection of the word of the Lord. And so the missionaries turned to the Gentiles. And among these Gentiles, the Bible records in 1348, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the, the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed etern eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Despite the opposition, the word of the Lord spread. These were the Jews from Antioch that 1419 refers to. Now, from Antioch, Paul and Barnabas arrive in Iconium because they had to leave the district. They arrive in Iconium. They enter the local synagogue, much the same kind of modus operandi. Again, they speak the word of the God, and a great number of Jews and Greeks believed, but unbelieving Jews sought to stir up the Gentiles against them. We see this in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. As they stayed in Iconium, teaching the gospel and making disciples, the division in the city incited these unbelieving Jews. It became so great that a plot was risen in order to stone Paul and the other disciples. They learn of it and they flee to Lystra. Those were the Jews from Iconium. So we have the, the Jews from Antioch, the Jews from Iconium. And now these opponents, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, travel then to Lystra following Paul and Barnabas and the other apostles for, for most of, of those people that were traveling, it was, it was over 100 miles. They traveled 100 miles to oppose Paul and Barnabas. The heart of hate that accompanies such a rejection seethes. These opponents enlist the crowds at Lystra. Now, the crowds at Lystra, remember, Paul had just healed a man miraculously who had been born crippled, unable to walk. The guy springs up. And the priests of Zeus and everybody, they're all freaking out. They're like, whoa, the gods, little g, have come to be among us. And they call Barnabas Zeus and they call Paul Hermes. And Paul and Barnabas are like, what are you doing? Stop. We're, we're men like you. And then he goes into teaching them about who God is. He's trying to point them to the living God. And it's this crowd provoked by the Jews from Antioch and the Jews from Iconium that turn and stone Paul. How, 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 is it, how is it possible? How can a crowd be so fickle? Well, people are fickle. Right? We're fickle, are we not? 
We want what we want. The apostle said, denied the honor of the people that wanted to give them. And based on what Luke records for us about the event, this along with the provocation of the Jewish opponents was all that was needed to turn some of the city against Paul. They stoned him and drug his lifeless body out of the city. The phrase in verse 19, supposing that he was dead, is really helpful. Luke's a physician, right? And as he's hearing the account, he's like, okay, well, he, he was likely unconscious. Supposing that he was dead, they drug him out of the city. And, and, and the event is not describing a resurrection from the dead. It says the opponents dragged him out of the city supposing he was dead. Mo- most likely he was unconscious, but it's a miracle he survived. Paul's left for dead. The disciples gather around him, likely praying and seeking to protect him from further harm. He gets up, enters the city, and then he and Barnabas depart for Lystra and traveling about 60 miles southeast to Derby. It's interesting, you know, he survives this stoning and then he travels some 60 miles on foot to Derby. Remember in Acts, it's the account of the apostles' work in the name of Jesus that Luke provides for Theophilus, to whom the account is, is addressed in Acts chapter 1. And often there are aspects of the story that Luke doesn't provide, and that's okay. It's his prerogative. He's moved by the Holy Spirit to give us exactly what is most important. But there are things that we can infer from this. Um, Paul and Barnabas were obviously in Lystra long enough before the stoning to appra- proclaim the word of, of the Lord and made disciples. And, and part of this is because we see as he lay unconscious um, that there's a slight clue that the disciples gathered around him. It could be the disciples that came with him. But, and then verses 21 and 22, disciples had evidently been made in Lystra because they had returned to strengthen those disciples that were there. Despite the opposition that led to the attempted execution of the apostle, it was these disciples that Paul and Barnabas returned to in order to encourage and care for them. This brings us to our second idea. First idea was anti-Christian opposition. We see it every time the gospel is proclaimed. There's often opposition to that gospel message. Second idea is discipleship care. How, how do you strengthen a church in a climate like this? Verses 21 and 22, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city, talking about Derby, when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, all the places where they had suffered persecution, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. These, these two verses help us understand so much about the ministry of the word. So helpful. First, the activity in Derby is the same activity that you and I can participate in right now. Preaching the gospel and making disciples. We've seen and discussed since the beginning of our study in Acts that the work of ministry begins with sharing the gospel message, sharing the gospel story, talking about what God has done in history to save sinners like you and me. Sharing the gospel. Our call is to be faithful deliverers of this message. We're, we're called to preach this message and proclaim the word. People need to hear. People need to hear this message. For without it, they'll perish. They need to know the truth. We're called to be faithful disciples, faithful deliverers of the message. People need to hear and understand the redemptive story that God sends people like me and you to do that. 
then, if by God's grace some people believe, then we get busy doing the work of discipleship. Now, those who come to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior become, become learners, become disciples um, who grow in the knowledge of lo- and love of God. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus said, said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission describes one of the primary activities of disciple-making, and that's teaching, teaching them to observe all that has been commanded by the Lord. We, we teach them what this book, this wonderful book that has the, the Lord's teaching and the apostles' teaching all about what we're supposed to know for life and for godliness. We have to point believers to the source of knowing and understanding who God is, what he's done in history, the redemptive story, the, the, the work of God throughout time in Jesus Christ, this beautiful message of salvation, how to live for Jesus, how to follow him, how to follow him. Paul had said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. How to follow, how to be a follower of the Lord. That's the business we're, we're about. And I, I, I'm going to make no apologies for this next thing I say. I, I say this a lot. And I will beat it into our skulls and my own as long as the Lord gives me opportunity to breathe. And it's this. The work of discipleship for you and me, it involves getting into our Bibles. Your life needs, if if someone squeezes a hug out of you, you should vomit up Scripture. Right? That's the best and most beautiful way I can ever use the word vomit, isn't it? If someone squeezes you, if a circumstance squeezes you, if a trial squeezes you, out should flow the beautiful, wonderful words of the Lord. This word transformed my life. It's transformed some of your lives. And it continues to do so. It, because in the pages of this book, we meet Jesus. In this book, we meet the Lord, and we learn how to follow him and live for him. If we want to have a gospel-effective witness in the world, we must be Bible-saturated people. Amen? In Derby and elsewhere, the, the ministry work involved proclaiming Jesus and discipling those who believe the message. When Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, it's teaching someone to have a full acquaintance with who Jesus is and what he said. It's a, it's a relationship. You know, one of the things I always end up saying to a non-believer is, like, I, I'm not interested in religion. I'm interested in a relationship where I'm made whole. A relationship where I know I'm loved. And the testimony of that love is right there. And the risen tomb where God said, yes, I am satisfied with Jesus' atoning sacrifice for Dale Stinson and for you. That relationship, wherein the Holy Spirit works to make Christ's teaching a part of us. That's no longer I who live, but Christ through me. Knowing information doesn't change us. There's lots of ancient scholars that know the Bible better than you and I do, but they have no relationship with Jesus. It's the first step. 
but we must come to understand the gospel and then let the gospel own us so that we're possessed by it and marked by it. Writing to Titus, who was serving as pastor to a young Christian community on Crete, Paul wrote this. He said in Titus 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and listen, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus, declare these things and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Listen to all the ways discipleship flows out of that. We're, we're trained by it. We're shaped by it. We're carved we're whittled out. Some of you young boys like get a pocket knife and whittle out something. I like doing that all the time. I have a collection of knives. Jason Redbird won't let me bring them into the office. But I do have a collection of them, and I like to whittle. I learned how to do it from Papa. That's what the Lord's doing to us, right? He, he's whittling us out into the shape that is most beautiful. discipleship we 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 care for people to disciple them well we have to care for them and where we care for people we show them the way we show them the way to the bread we care with encouragement and exhortation and and rebuke and challenge we care for people well enough to tell them the truth about who they need to know and who they need to follow acts 14:21 tells us that the, the apostles returned to lystra Iconium and Antioch, and in each of these areas, their ministry of the word involved three, three aspects of care, as noted in verse 22. He, strengthening them, encouraging them, and then appointing elders. I, I honestly feel as I thought through this this week, I, I felt like I could take each of those ideas in the midst of, of this, and this is just a sub-point, right? I, I, we could preach a message on each of these ideas, but... You want to eat lunch after this, so I can't do that. Strengthening them, strengthening the souls of the disciples. That's what I said. Whatever does that mean? When it comes to discipleship care, when, when it says that one of the aspects of care that the apostles showed in the ministry of the word was that they strengthened the souls of the disciples, what does that mean? This is the real you. Your soul, it's the real you. It's the seat of who you are. It's who you are before God, the only one who knows who you are, truly. And in the midst of our souls, we must be strengthened. The disciples, as they were facing a cultural climate that was in opposition to the gospel, as they were gathering together and trying to live for Jesus, they needed to be strengthened in the souls of who they are. They needed to be reminded who they are and what their identity is in, that the object of faith is something that is sure and sound. They needed to be strengthened. Likely it was a continued instruction and an exhortation in the word of God so that they can know more deeply the truths that Paul would, would secondly encourage them to hold on to. You continue in the faith. Continue in these things. 
God has rescued you. God has justified you. God has given you a new identity, and he's going to progressively sanctify you to make, him look, make you look more like him. These are truths that you abide in and you walk in. Continue in the faith. That was his encouragement. And the way he did this is interesting. It may not seem like encouragement to our minds. How did the apostle encourage them? By explaining that it's through tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. Friends, beloved, listen to me. You may not have had a dose of it yet. But fundamental to our existence as disciples is that we follow the one who calls us to take up our cross and follow him. It's the way of the cross. The life of a disciple is the way of the cross. To Timothy in Ephesus later, Paul wrote these words. He said, 2 Timothy 3.10-12, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from... All the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Leave this up here for a minute. Look at the, look at the idea of discipleship still embedded in that. You followed my teaching, doctrine, followed conduct, what we put off. We put off the sinful, worldly ways of our lives. My aim in life, my pursuit of, of the joy of the Lord, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, and then he talks about the persecutions we're, we're talking about. The way of the disciples, the way of the cross. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. What possible encouragement can come from these types of statements? It, it's reality. Sometimes um, I have to say to my boys, that's, son, that's not going to happen. You know, that's kind of disappointing. What, what do you mean, Dad? That's not going to happen, son. Sorry. But I love him enough to tell the truth. I could easily say, oh, yeah, maybe. That, we could do that. That might happen. Sure. Maybe one day, someday. You know how long you wait for one day, someday? All the time you wait for one day, someday. It never comes. But you look at him and you tell him the truth. The way of a disciple is the way of the cross. That's the way of a disciple. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. It's reality. And for the apostles' understanding of how we enter the kingdom of God, it's a necessity. The apostles explain to the young churches that it is through tribulations that we must enter. Both a reality and a necessity. It is, it's foreign to us, our contemporary American minds. But even our Lord explains it to be true. In Matthew 7, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It's easy to look like the rest of the world. But when we look like the Lord and we point to the truth, that's when we face opposition. 
even in our own lives, there should be things that are constantly vying for our affections and our attention. Are there, are there oppositions in your life right now? There are in mine. But I'm, I'm, I'm following my Lord through the narrow gate. I want to cut those things off. There are aspects of this world that aren't going to matter in heaven, people. They're not going to matter. And so what are you going to live for? What's most, the most beautiful thing you know? What's, what's the most precious truth about your own existence right now? It's that Jesus Christ loves you. He went to the cross for you. And through your faith in him, you are saved. The value of that should shine bright in you, brothers and sisters. The value of that should shine bright in you. You hear me? I say it because I love you. And I need you to say it to me. I don't want to be on a big, broad highway that leads to destruction. Because you know what? Destruction, you know what that is? It's destruction. That sounds awful. And Jesus said it's a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so I'm not going there. And you know what? If someone wants to go there, as Charles Spurgeon said, they're going to have to jump over my body. I'm not letting them. We have to proclaim this message. We have to talk about this truth. It's apparent in Acts that the message of the gospel brings opposition. It's offensive. And so I'm a, I, I just want to know, are we talking about it enough to offend anybody? Are we facing the kind of tribulation Paul speaks of? I'm taking a risk here. Think about our contemporary culture. Can you count how many aspects of the gospel is offensive to contemporary culture? I want you to think of a few with me, all right? If you get upset with me, you can blame Jason Renberg later. Consider with me all the ways that the word is offensive to our culture. That God created all things, that there's a God that created everything, that's offensive to a contemporary intellectual mind. It's not possible. That he created men and women to have different roles, though they're equal in essence, that's offensive. That he established marriage in the garden as between a man and a woman that, and then proclaims that this marriage is a reflective picture of Christ Jesus in the church. The culture finds that offensive. That he wants to punish sin, that's offensive. That he punished his own son, Jesus, that's offensive. That without faith in Jesus, we will remain in our sin and stay consigned to a real, literal hell. The world finds that offensive. Our culture finds it all offensive. And the question for us then is, are we talking about it enough to offend anybody? I'm not telling you, you go take your Bibles and whack people across the face. I'm saying, you love people enough to tell them the truth. And I know this this really falls under the first point, but but we need to go down this road. We have to talk about it in order to emphasize the truth about all these seemingly offensive things. All these seemingly offensive things. Let me tell you the truth. It's this. Our sin before a holy God is offensive to him. It's offensive to him, but friends, because of God's love, because of God's love for us, knowing that we're hopeless and we can't make ourselves righteous in his sight, 
what did he do? He sent his son Jesus. And all that you and I deserve, he poured it out on his son on the cross. The Bible says that for those who are perishing, this is awful news. But those who are being saved, the folly of the cross is wonderful. He sent his son Jesus to live and suffer and die in our place, to make atonement for our sin, because we can't atone for our own sin. Everything you and I deserve, he sent his son here for. The culture finds the gospel offensive because the gospel is countercultural. Culture says you're a consumer. Culture says you're, you're sufficient. Culture says that you do what you want. Don't worry about anybody else. We have the laws of privatization, right? The laws of relativism. You be you. The gospel says that if you be you, you're destined for hell. You'll stay that way. But if you, in the gospel, let him be who he is, Jesus Christ, and you put your faith and trust in what he's done for you, just even that takes a humility to say, someone else has to do something for me that I can't. That's offensive to the rest of the world. But it's the beauty and joy of what we know is true. Amen? Some will be offended and some will be saved. But we cannot stay silent for fear of the reality of opposition. Please. That momentary discomfort in the workplace, it doesn't compare to the discomfort they could feel if they don't know the truth. The reality is opposition, and the reality is persecution. We'll go through these things, but we can be encouraged in the face of this. We can be encouraged in the face of this tribulation, knowing that we are kingdom citizens, that we don't belong to this world. We don't belong to this world, and, and we're in his kingdom, and though we're in the world, we must traverse this world on our way to that heavenly abode that he has promised for us and the rooms he's made for us. Jesus said himself, he said our identity in, in the faith is so secure, he said this, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. I and the Father are one. No one's going to snatch you out. It's not possible, Jesus says. So despite the tribulation you might face, the reality of that, that you are impenetrable in your security in the faith, what encouragement is that? Amen? That's good, isn't it? That's good. Paul and Barnabas in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch encourage the disciples to continue in the faith by explaining that the road ahead, uh, ahead it's gonna you're going to face tribulation. It's, it's a reality it's a necessity. The disciples in each of these eras had seen firsthand that, that it was so because they witnessed Paul's persecution. In their cultural climates, they would need strengthening and encouragement. We, we need strengthening and encouragement. Don't we? 
The third way the apostles ministered to the churches, and I could preach a whole other message on this one. Verse 23. Verse 23, it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. The third way that they care for the churches is by appointing leaders who can continue to instruct them and to care for them, men of character and maturity that can teach them how to follow the Lord. That's what we need in our churches, men of, of, of ill repute who, who, can, who can follow the Lord and be a model for the rest of us. Right? I'm thankful for the men I get to serve with. Um, each of them challenges me and blesses my life. And you should thank them too. These are good men that I get to know and serve with. We, we serve you because we love you and we want you to know these truths. I could I'd call each of them by name and tell you how thankful I am for all of them, but you can tell them. Um, I'm, I am thankful for you all, guys. After appointing these qualified men, the apostles in, in worship, in the worship of prayer and fasting, committed the congregations to the Lord, um, entrusted them to the Lord. They believed in Jesus, so they entrusted them to Jesus. Paul and Barnabas continued their, their return journey to, to Antioch. And now, I've said Antioch several times. I want you to know there's two Antiochs. Right? There's Antioch and, uh, Antioch and Pisidia. There's Antioch and Syria. And we're going to show you a map now with the wonders of technology, I think. Right? Okay. Um, so hopefully, <laughs> well, actually, it's smaller than I thought it would be. But up, up north there in the northwest, there's Antioch and Pisidia. And over here, on the east side is Antioch and Syria, the region of Syria. This shows you kind of the, the, the traverse, the trail of, of the missionaries. Now, what I want you to see here is I want you to see an evidence of Paul and Barnabas' care. What they did was when they got to Derby, Derby's the, the easternmost point, they could have, to return to Antioch and Syria, they could have just kept going east. They could have gone through Cilicia, um, Tarsus is there, Paul's home, hometown is Tarsus. They could have just gone through there and, and traveled down back to Antioch and Syria. But what they did is they backtracked. They went back. They went back to the very places where they had faced such opposition and persecution. They went back to strengthen, to encourage, and appoint elders in those churches. That's how you strengthen churches. That's how you care for churches. And, and, and an interesting aspect of this brief section of the narrative in, in verse 26 is it says that they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that was now fulfilled. When they returned to Antioch and Pisidia, that's where Luke says they were commended from this church to the grace of God for the work that they had now fulfilled. That's curious. They fulfilled the work? Let's return to the commission. What happened in, in, in their commissioning? Look at Flip over to Acts 13.2 with me. 13.2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Sets them apart. 14.26. It says that they fulfilled the, go- the work that God had appointed for them. And what was the endeavor? The endeavor was to preach the word. Preach and minister the word. Make disciples. And this reveals the the third idea I want to conclude with today, briefly. The power of God's word. I I want you, brothers and sisters, to have such uh, an unshakable doubt in the power of God's word 
that, you know, when you're squeezed, when people are hugging you, when the scriptures pour out, that you can speak it with bold confidence. In Antioch, the church had commissioned Paul and Barnabas, now gathers to hear what has been accomplished. And look at verse 27 of chapter 14. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. They declared everything that happened. They, they faced opposition. They faced opposition in each place, but God made disciples in each place. God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Beloved, set your minds on this fact. The word of God is powerful. The word of God is powerful, and it is sure. Throughout Acts, we have seen this over and over. The word of God goes out, and there's rejection and opposition from some, but at the same time, there's salvation for those who believe. Something striking in the book of Acts is how, God, how the gospel or word of God is presented as living. It's, it's, it's a dynamic living entity. In Acts, it, we show, um, it shows both the progress through and often in spite of human agency. The word of God as a living thing, when God gives a word, it's alive, Right? And so when, when that word goes out, despite human agencies that seek to prevent it and through those who seek to proclaim it, God makes his word known. And through you and me, he can still make his word known. The book of Acts is showing us that something that's not even, it's nothing new to us. We've, we've read it through the scriptures. The Lord has consistently said this concerning his word, that it is a powerful and living word. Look, look, look at Isaiah 55.10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jeremiah 23.29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. The late David Powell and one of my favorite quotes from that biblical counselor and scholar, he said, the word of God is the anvil that's broken a thousand hammers. Paul says in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. 2 Timothy 2.8, he writes to Timothy Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But read that last part out loud. What's it say? But the word of God is not bound. But the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. Dr. Plummer, Robert Plummer says this, just as the word of the Lord in the Old Testament inevitably accomplishes his, his will, so the gospel is not, not simply a definable content about what God has done or promised, but it is the all-effective decree 
or the power of accomplishing God's will. The gospel of Jesus Christ accomplishes God's will. And his will for people is that they come to know who he is through the faith they have in his son and that they would be saved and be able to enjoy him forever. God's word begs us to comprehend its power. And this should leave you with much confidence to proclaim it. You should never fail. You should never falter. You should never feel like you, you don't know what to do. You can't remember where the verse is? Take your Bible with you. I like to tell my boys, you make sure you take your sword with you. The word of God is effective. It's effective to accomplish God's purposes. It's powerful. Our call is to present the word and make disciples. Paul himself knows how true this is. Even when opposition to the gospel confronted him at every stop seeking to prevent the spread of the gospel, God is the one who opened the door. God is the one who opens the door for us. God is the one who's going to accomplish the work he intends to do. Some will reject. Some will be saved. But the results of which are not up to you. You're called to be faithful. You're called to preach the message. You're called to present Jesus and him crucified, risen from the dead, so that people can be saved. That's what you're called to do. That's what we're called to do. God's the one who opens the door. Despite how the Jews traveled across hundreds of miles to oppose him, despite the way they turned the crowds and the, the fickleness of those crowds, fickled fiends can't shut the door. Because God is the one that bursts it wide open. So let me give you some implications for this. If you don't feel confident in sharing the gospel with people, have a copy of the scriptures with you. Learn these scriptures. Learn the truths. Learn, learn how to share the message. And then learn how to walk alongside people and read the Bible with them. Take the Gospel of Mark. Take the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Ask, do you want to read the Bible with me? And just read the Bible with people so that they will see Jesus on the pages that we've seen him on. I want you to look for areas of opposition in your own life. Some will be external. Some will be internal. The internal ones are the ones you need to put to death with the power of the Holy Spirit in you. There are things that are vying for your affections and your attentions that are not profitable in the kingdom of God. Search those out. Ask the Lord. Search me and know me. See if there's any grievous way in me. Search those out. Put those to death. Put those off. Let your aim in life be towards Jesus. What are the ways that you are called to care in this body, in discipleship care? How do, you dis how do you care for someone to come alongside them when they're suffering and point them to the truth? Do you know how to do that? Do you want to learn how to do that? If you want to learn how to do that, come talk to me. I want to teach you how to do that. It's real easy. You sit down with somebody and you love them enough to listen. You ask the Lord's help in prayer, and you point them to passages of scriptures where the truth of God points them to what they need to know, what they need to do, how they need to change, how they need to repent, how they need to confess, how they need to rest in the truth that God loves them. 
we want to teach you how to do that because we need one another to care for one another. Where, finally, do you doubt that the word is powerful? Where are your doubts? Where are, you, where are your doubts about its truth? Ask the Lord's help. Talk to some of your pastors. Let's talk about how we can encourage you in the faith, strengthen you in the soul, and set you on your way to be a good and faithful disciple maker of whom the Lord would say on that day, well done. If you have any questions or want to talk after the service, you can come see any of us elders. We'd love to talk with you and pray for you. Um, whether you're in plenty or in strife, we'd love to talk through to you and care for you. We'd love to set you on mission to see how you can participate in next year's children's discipleship, how you can participate in this discipleship care that I kind of teased. We, we want to talk to you about how you can be involved in the strengthening of this body so we can be an effective witness in the gospel so that we would be Bible-saturated people pointing people to our risen Savior and King Jesus. Come talk to us. Let's pray together.